The final of the men's synchronised three-metre springboard diving competition. Sam Dorman and Mike Hickson were the first medal contenders to perform their final dive. It proved to be exceptionally good. That's just the name of the game. Your mental capacity and strength at those really heated moments when you only get six dives to do is everything. You get six tries in the span of 45 minutes. You make one mistake, you're out. Rio silver medalist Sam Dorman. Sam, great to see you. Should be very much enough to cement the silver medal. I think people put into a box, you know, if you don't approach it in an aggressive way and you don't say, like, I'm taking on this moment every time, and people define you maybe as someone who's not a great competitor, and that's bullshit. You know, everyone does it differently, but if you can find a way to deliver in the moment, I think that makes a great competitor. Brilliant performance from the Americans. Isn't that the beast so damn tough? You can be the Olympic champion and then fail a dive, but your ability to turn around and respond to that definitely determines your toughness. Welcome to the Toughness Podcast. I'm your host, Paddy Steinfurt, and we are going to dive right into a great show today. I love the puns to start the show there, and that you'll see why I use that term. We've got a couple of Olympic divers on with us today. First up, Mike Hickson, who is a two-time Olympian, two-time silver medalist, and his partner in synchronized diving, Sam Dorman, who is a one-time Olympian and one-time silver medalist. Welcome to the show, guys. Thanks for having us. Happy to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us, man. Great to have you on. Both calling in from Miami, Florida, and we've managed to dodge some of the hurricanes so far. Hopefully we don't get hit while we're doing the show, but just in case we do, we'll get right into it. The Olympics have just finished. So for those who hear this late, this is about a week after Tokyo 2021. As you sit and watch that games go ahead with the pandemic going on and all the restrictions around it, Sam, question for you. As you watch from afar, how does that feel watching athletes go through that, knowing the extra pressures that are on? You know, I think there's extra pressures, but I think there's also less pressure not having a crowd there. And I think that may, I don't know, Mike, if it made a huge difference for you or not, but I think not having a crowd there is a totally different game. And I think stuff that most people weren't prepared for. I would assume. So, I mean, it, there's so many different directions you can take it. Mike, you were there. Yeah. Mike, you did compete. Mm-hmm. How did you find that environment? It was very strange, you know, to be in an empty arena that was supposed to seat like 10,000 people. Uh, it was eerie. But I think the people who competed the best there, that didn't matter to them. You know, we all knew this was going to be there. We all knew that was going to be the challenge. But can you still find that reason to get fired up to have that edge on the day. And if you do, I think those are the people that excel in that environment. Yeah, it's an interesting dynamic, and particularly for someone who went to one that had crowds versus not. I want to explore that a little bit because I know in my work with a couple of football teams who went to the games in Tokyo, that for it was harder for the people who'd been previously than it was for the newcomers. Newcomers were just like, ah, this is what the Olympics look like, right? But you mentioned there your ability to fire each other up or like you work as a tandem, obviously, with Sam previously and with your partner this time in Tokyo. How much is that a big thing for divers, particularly in synchronized diving? Obviously, you have to be in sync. It's the name of the event. But in terms of your emotional control before an event, during the event, after a dive, like how much is that interaction? How important is that? It's huge. I think the biggest component, especially for Sam and I, was trust. You know, if you're standing up there in the biggest moments and you don't trust the guy standing next to you to hit that dive in the biggest moments, you're not going to hit the dive yourself. You're not going to feel a lot of confidence there. And I think that was the biggest thing for us in those moments. 
In terms of interaction, it, I guess it's a little different. My style of diving, I, I wasn't born to be a diver. My style of diving is, is very unique. And uh, I bring a lot of intensity when I compete. And I don't think many people are used to that or really want that in their game. And so Sam and I kind of did our own thing, but definitely the trust was there. Sam, yeah. can you attest to that? His style of diving, he's not born to be a diver. And the style of diving, I hear the word unique, and I'm doing air quotes on the screen here. Like, <laughs> that's an interesting label. How, how would you describe it as the partner? He's got a fighting mentality. He's a boxer. You know, he's ready to go. He wants to win. Whereas, you know, I'm in the corner listening to John Mayer trying to chill out and, and take, <laughs> like, you know, 75, 80% because I can't go. I, I can't, if I go into fifth gear, it's just out of control. And so, when we first started diving together, it was a very quick relationship. We started a couple months before the trials. So the communication side of it was huge. And our very first conversation was me approaching him saying, Hey, I know you dive totally different than I do. And I don't want your way of competing to interfere with mine. So I think it's most useful if we keep it to a bare minimum, and when we got on the, get on the boards, we'll come together. So we had this same one routine that we went through and we stuck to that from day one. Wow. That's super interesting, particularly as someone who works in team sports a lot, to hear that come out in what's generally normally an individual sport, right? To then combine with another individual. And who led you in that process is my question, which I'll come back to in a sec. But the reason I'm asking is a lot of people – think, and this is in life, in business relationships, et cetera, but particularly at work in high pressure events, a lot of people think we need to be friends and feel good about it, about how well we fit together, our chemistry in order to play well together, right? Whereas the research in particularly in sports psychology will show that social cohesion within teams is not as important as task cohesion. And what you've just described there, Sam, is the perfect example of like, we don't have to be on exact same wavelength. We don't have to be the same people, but when we step on the platform, then we've got to be in lockstep. Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious, did that come to you naturally? Did you know it was going to be a problem or did a coach walk you through that? I think at first it was just a, my biggest concern that, you know, cause in competition, you don't want to mess with someone else's psyche and in doing so it can really throw you off. And so I was like, look, this, it's kind of like how it has to work because that's just the name of the game, your mental capacity and strength at those really heated moments when you only get six dives to do is everything. You get six tries in the span of 45 minutes. You make one mistake, you're out. That's a, a very tight window. But if you think about it on the scale of the, the quad, the four-year span that leads up to that, you get six dives in four years, right? That's what we're really talking about here. Yeah. And so, Mike, I'll throw to you as you have done it twice and we talk about whether it's with crowds or, or away from crowds. When you're up there and you have six dives and it's taken you four years even to step foot on that platform in that stadium, talk us through what's, particularly as a fighter, someone who like in the presence of pressure and stress, you like tense up and say, let's fucking go. Like how does that affect you physiologically, both in terms of your ability to do the event but also stay in step with someone who you're supposed to do it with. Yeah, I, I, that's a really good way to think about it. I guess the biggest thing for me was always to compartmentalize. So if I was in a moment where I knew it wouldn't help me to make the moment any bigger than it needed to be, I just needed to relax, I would do that. 
you know, the first two dives and synchronized diving of those six are very easy dives or compulsories. Everyone does pretty much the same dives. And so you got to stay pretty calm in those moments. But when you're in the last round, you're on a front four and a half and you need a little bit of gas. I'm all of a sudden my brain's turned on, I'm locked in and I'm ready to go. And, you know, if you watch my reaction after we hit that dive in Rio, I mean, that is the way I felt. That was completely natural. You're just fired up. And I don't know, I think, I think being able to compartmentalize each dive and not let anything get too big is, is the easiest way to make sure that your emotions and your adrenaline is where it needs to be. Yeah. Both of you have described both your own and each other's, you know, ideal psych state mm-hmm. as both for yourself personally, but also saying like in this event, you know, when we have six dives and there's only this very small window, 45 minutes, four years coming together in that moment. At what point do you think in your journey from a kid who threw himself off the edge of a pool at one point to Olympic diver, did you become aware of like managing this part of our game is super important? I can't just get up there and because I've got like the athletic ability to do it. There's a lot that's it's mental to this game. Where did you, each of either of you can take this to start? Like when did you first realize that? I was really late, honestly. It was probably 2013 when I started. I, that was my first international competition in 2013. Um, it was a Grand Prix and that's when things really took off and it, it moved very quick. And I had to just, you know, I didn't really have a choice. I just had to roll with it if I wanted to get better. And so how does, how does an Olympic diver who ends up getting a silver medal three years later, like that's the, and only, you only really got serious about it three years beforehand or were you like no, diving for fun and then it got serious? What, what happened for you? It was serious. You know, I competed in the 2012 Olympic trials. So I knew like I had ability. In 2013, that's when I started doing more synchro and that picked up and then I started doing synchro with other partners and then it started to really move quick. And I think doing the synchro, cause I didn't do a whole lot of synchro up until, you know, 2012, I was just getting the hang of it and starting it. So there wasn't a whole lot that I had been doing. Right. Mike, how about you? At what point did you realize, and, Matt, and you've already mentioned, like, you know, you have to put on the gas a little bit when the, when the going gets tough. Is that something you picked up just from diving or are you actually a literal boxer? as Sam described you metaphorically, like where you were fighter before you got into diving? You know, the first thing I want to say about Sam that I think is really interesting, you know, we'd have conversations even after the Olympics. He'd be like, yeah, you know, I'm not a very good competitor. And I'd be like, all right, well, there's, to me, the three highest pressure meets in the world are World Cup to qualify your spot for the Olympics, Olympic trials to qualify yourself to the Olympics, and the Olympic Games, because it's the Olympics. This guy stood up at all three of those meets and delivered. And so I don't want to hear that you're not a great competitor. And I think people put into a box, you know, if you don't approach it in an aggressive way and you don't say like, I'm taking on this moment every time. And if you're a little bit more like Sam has listened to John Mayer, I think people define you maybe as someone who's not a great competitor and that's bullshit. You know, everyone does a little differently, but if you can find a way to deliver in the moment, I think that makes you a great competitor. And that was something I always admired about Sam and his understanding of himself to get to that point was always really interesting to me. For myself, yeah, a little different. I realized pretty early on that I wasn't a very good diver, um, <laughs> which sounds a little ridiculous, but if you talk to most people... Um, it does sound ridiculous. I'll, I'll throw that at me. Like, you're an Olympic medalist, but sure, go on. Uh, well, so I think there's... He's a gamer. Typical... A gamer. Okay. <laughs> he is a, uh, I'm going to interrupt right here. He's a gamer. His training, you thrive off the adrenaline. So... 
you may not be perfect in training, but when comes game time, Mike will pull through every single time. He's a gamer. Well, so that was something I, I learned pretty early on was like, maybe I didn't have all the physical gifts to make all these dives like front four and a half. I really struggled to make that, especially in practice. And so my level of training was here, but I understood, you know, when I was in an event and you have that adrenaline, you have that extra gear and you can make things easier. I understood how to control that to get to here. And so it would really piss people off. You know, I just train here, compete here, typically in diving. And it's unique as a sport like this. Most people maybe train here, compete here, which I realize we're on a podcast. What I'm saying is people will train at this level, but compete slightly below it. I would train at this level and then compete significantly higher than that. And so that was something I learned how to do at a pretty early age, almost out of necessity. Yeah. All right. So thank you for the visual translation for people who are just listening. The next question that immediately jumps to mind, you're like, you said you learned how to do it and you use the word control. So this is like something that you're able to toggle on and off for want of a better word, or you can actually switch into that mode, like opt in to a degree. But when you said you learned how to do it, how do you do that? What's your tricks to doing that? It's all about, it's like anything else, the more you practice, the better you get. And so every meet I dove in, and this is another thing I always thought was really important is if I was diving in some throwaway dual meet on a Saturday for Indiana, I would treat it like it was the Olympics. Every single time I competed, it was the most important meet I'd ever gone into. And I was all in. And so now I know what it feels like to be on the end of the board in a pressure situation where I have to hit from four and a half. And so I know what that adrenaline feels like. I've done it a hundred times. So by the time I'm doing it in an Olympic final, all of a sudden I feel prepared it's not my first time dealing with adrenaline. I know I'm going to have that extra gear in that moment. So just like anything else, the more you practice it, the better you get. Mm, interesting. Do you feel like that helped you in an empty stadium in Tokyo? That you, you were like, hey, I've, I've dove at shittier stadiums than this with no one in it. Was that it, something that crossed your mind? In my head, the stands were packed. You know, and that's the thing. Is I was able to go to that place in my mind, you know, to, to make that adrenaline come up for me. Very cool. What's... um. If you let's take you two out of the picture because you obviously had some great chemistry, you had some great success. So it was nothing to sneeze at together. And so talking about each other is different than talking about the competition, right? So let's let's remove names. Don't have to mention any names on other teams, other countries, even other Americans. But as you think about the ideal diver, if you were putting him together or her, like Mike, you say, I wasn't built to be a diver. What would be the mental ingredients of an elite Olympic? diver i think that depends on their, their physical attributes first you know mike you know you you had a harder time to make dives so you had to play a certain game and know that you had to utilize that adrenaline whereas i was able to make the dives but i couldn't use that adrenaline like you could and i had to really learn how to manage that and and slow that down so it depends physically and mentally those go they work directly together. So it's fit for purpose is what you're saying. Yeah, I think so. Hmm. Yeah, I'd agree hundred percent because in diving, you know, you're doing, you're doing six different dives. They are different. And the way that you have to approach those dives is very different. So the more that you can understand what, where you need to be for each of those and adapt yourself. I mean, that's the perfect diver. The person who understands themselves so well. And that, I don't know that, you need to have a one-way approach. It's your ability to adapt that's probably the most important. 
You're listening to Toughness, a podcast where some of the world's best performers from different fields share their personal stories about pressure, stress, and success. This series of interviews is a product of the Human Performance Think Tank, with thanks to the U.S. Army and Booz Allen Hamilton. Coming up later in the show. If I could compete like I trained, I, I would definitely perform better. So taking as much pressure off myself as possible was the name of the game. So damn proud. So it's a term that actually comes up often when I ask that question, is around psychological flexibility is what they call it in, in the nerd regions of psychology. But it's a, effectively your ability to, okay, I need to be aggressive here versus I need to be soft here. Maybe it's permanently I need to be aggressive because my body's not good enough. Or it's someone who is like an elite physical specimen, but also can, to Sam's point, I, they're able to harness that adrenaline in the right way at the right time. So they can pick and choose which tool they use depending on the context. Further to that question for you then, if we're saying the ideal diver is really just, it depends is the answer. How would you define toughness in your experience? So firstly, as an Olympian, secondly, as a diver, thirdly, as a synchro, Olympian first, diver second, synchro third, what's toughness mean to you guys? I think if I can paint a picture of it, it would be the capability of missing the dive and not letting that affect the rest of the dives that you have. If you can treat it like it's one dive at a time and not treat it as a collection of dives altogether, you know, you may miss a dive, but if you can come back and, and nail the rest of your dives, it may potentially keep you in the game. So it's minimizing your misses and, and managing the one dive at a time mentality. Yeah, I, I would, 100% agree. To me, it just summed up in one word, it's resiliency. And more than even, certainly moving from one dive to the next, recovering from a miss is the biggest thing. But I didn't think about on a grander scale, competition to competition. The volatility in diving is one of the highest of any sports. You can be the Olympic champion, Ilya Zakharov in 2012, and then fail a dive and have one of the roughest events four years later in Rio. You can be Tom Daly where in the Olympic prelim, you set the Olympic record. And then in the semifinal, you don't make the final. And so this sport humbles you like no other sport can, but your ability to turn around and respond to that definitely determines your toughness. And I think about someone like Tom Daly, who's, in my opinion, one of the toughest divers out there because he did respond to that. And he just won a gold medal in Tokyo. And I think that is what you have to respect most in the sport is people's resiliency there. It's a great answer from both of you because there is a, there is elements of that in everything but i did watch with interest uh, there's for some reason as a former athlete even as a as a coach now gymnastics and diving have always fascinated me because there's things that you guys do with your bodies that i'm just like that's just out of this world that you can actually even do that let alone as you're diving or as you're falling through the air and so i tune in and i watch how if someone misses one dive or one move on a vault, how that clearly impacts your score in a, in a huge way. And then your ability to still go out and compete, even though the scoreboard doesn't look good. That's one of the biggest indicators in other sports of like, is that guy, a, to use Sam's word, is that guy a gamer? Like, does it matter what the scoreboard is? He just goes or she just goes, right? And I want to ask about for each of you, maybe together in your time in Rio or maybe individually, can you share with us an example of where, where there was that humbling moment or that like, oh, shit, this doesn't look good? Like particularly either leading into Rio or even just 
within the event in Rio, as you get your six dives, at what point does it become clear, like, if we hit this, we could medal. If we miss it, we get nothing. Oh, man, there's a couple sides of this. Mike, you talk about the real side. There's something I, I actually want to bring up. And in terms of building that strength within your head, you know, we're dealing with a board that's moving 24-7. And you land on that board, you will be, you're not going to land on the middle of the board every single time. So you're going to land leaning forward, leaning back, leaning back on the corner of the board, leaning forward on the left corner of the board. So every takeoff off that board is totally different. And that's a mental game in itself. And I think that the ability to try and take every single takeoff and build the strength of knowing, okay, I can take this one and this one and this one and this one, and I know what to do with it. That takes, I think, years and years of experience and growth. So jumping into the side of it, the diving side and the gymnastics side, there's so many little tiny nuances that you'll never see or hear about. And in terms of springboard diving, that is something that takes forever to figure out and learn how to do. And it'll make or break a diver because you know, if you continue to balk and practice all day long and not take those bad takeoffs, then you're just training yourself to only accept the good ones and not learn from those bad ones and utilize them. Wow, that's fascinating. And, and I want to dig in on that because you said the nuances that we don't know, particularly not even people in diving, but absolutely the general public don't know. And I think the general public for the first time ever heard the term twisties during the Tokyo Games, thanks to Simone's trials and i'm interested a does do twisties happen to divers in the same way they happen to gymnasts and when they do or the the equivalent like you said there sam like your inability to go off a springboard if it's not perfect means you you balk and you avoid the potential of doing a belly flop how is that handled within diving have you seen people go through that or have you experienced it yourselves i don't think anything messes with someone they call it the twisties in gymnastics, but getting lost into a twister, I don't think there's anything that messes with a person's mind more than that because it's almost something you can't control, you know? And a lot of people didn't understand what was going on in Tokyo. And I certainly don't understand gymnastics as well as I understand diving, but it was just labeled as mental health, period. That's it. And it's like, well, sort of. I think there was probably a lot of mental health that was going into it and out of it, but the action itself getting lost in a twister, it's like the worst feeling in the world because you're doing this action, you have no idea where you are in the air. And now there's the element like, I don't know where I am. I'm about to land for them. It's on the floor. For us, it's in water. It's going to hurt. And I, that's like, that's hell right there. To have to get back up again and again and try it, you know, they'll put you in a belt and try to figure it out. But it's, uh, it's not a fun place to be. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I've because in the air, you always want to know where you're at and know your knowledge of where the board is where the water is, where's up, where's down, and your proprioception of everything. And as soon as that disappears, you have zero control, trust on where you're at. And you are, it's like you just become like, like you've never driven a car before and it's your first time getting in and you don't know what's happening. And you're already driving and you got to figure out how to drive this car. It's like, I, what do I do? You just try and you figure it out as best you can, but majority of the time it ends in a disaster. Right. And so some of that is, is clearly vision because you need to be able to locate like the ground or the pool. I, I remember fun fact they shared on the broadcast of the diving was that they deliberately make ripples on the top of the water so you can actually spot where the top of the water is rather than just looking into a blue pool. 
Is that true fact or were they just trying to play with our heads? Yeah. So that's true. So some of it's vision. You need to be able to locate. But how much of that is an internal compass that you developed over thousands and thousands of dives? For twisting, I would say it's 100%. Mm-hmm. I don't think, for me, twisting was 0% visual. Yep, agreed. Flipping is totally different. But when you're twisting, that's a completely different game. You, that's a feel. Yeah. Okay. That was a cool little diversion. But it's an interesting element of the experience for you guys and for gymnasts and anyone else who does things that are physically threatening is the ability to, like you said, Mike, the separation of this isn't a mental health thing. I'm, I'm legitimately scared for my physical safety here. And that's an okay thing to have. Just as mental health issues are an okay thing to have, but our ability to talk about either of them can be significantly impacted by the people around us. We'll get to that in a little bit later in the show. But Mike, back over to you around the Rio games, the point where you guys start to recognize, like whether it's internally or you're actually talking to each other about like, holy shit, we could, we're in metal contention here. And we have one, maybe one dive or two dives to actually nail that or leave it behind yeah I, so through four rounds we were great through four rounds we were right where we wanted to be our two compulsory dives were great and our first two dives were both twisters couldn't have done any better fifth round we missed a little bit you know we didn't know where they were going to both went by and it was a point where you're kind of like oh that kind of opened the door for anybody to sneak back up and knock us off the podium but we knew we leave our riskiest dive last highest risk highest reward and with that being said we knew like there's a lot of volatility that could happen here. There's always a chance that you can be knocked off the podium in that situation. And so <laughs> that was definitely a point for us where we recognize like this is our do or die time. We've got to step up. And I don't know, you know, Sammy is not as tuned into the scoreboard as I am in those moments. I don't think he wants to put himself in that situation. But for me, it was like, yeah, I know we got to hit this. And if we do, we could be anywhere from gold to silver bronze. And if we miss it, we're probably off the podium. And so that was, Definitely a defining moment for us. And touching back on the scoreboard side of it, when I when Mike mentioned that I say that I'm not a good competitor, when I go and watch a scoreboard and I know what's going on in the competition, I know the different places that everybody's in, it's game over for me. So I don't watch the scoreboard. I don't pay attention to anything. I do my six dives and then I check the score and see where we're at. Whereas Mike can watch the scoreboard. He utilizes that to his advantage. Interesting. When, when did you find out that that was a bad thing for you to do or a potentially um, bad thing? You know, I, I never really enjoyed having that much pressure on me. So if I could alleviate as much pressure as I could, then I was able to compete like I trained. I, I wanted it to be more like training. If I could compete like I trained, I, I would definitely perform better. So taking as much pressure off myself as possible was the name of the game. And so back to you then, Mike, it sounds like you two guys knew that, or at the very least, if you didn't know it, you knew it pretty shortly into your partnership where you talked about needing to be in different places before you stepped onto the the diving platform and the board. And that was explicit. With that being explicit and with you guys being clear that like, okay, Sam needs to be chill and not looking at the scoreboard and Mike needs the opposite. How much did each of you help like what role is there for the teammate in this instance to actually help distract sam from the scoreboard or sam to poke the bear within mike and get him rolled up like do you guys actually play off each other in those events 
you know, I think we both got so good individually at what we were doing. It was almost just like, leave the other guy alone. And, you know, never, never my wildest dreams. Like I turned to set and say, Hey, like, you know, we need about 95 on this one. I need you to slip <laughs> it up. You know, that was, that was never going to happen. I understood like, that's, that's not the game we play. He, he knows he's going to try to throw down as hard as he can. And so that was going to be there no matter what. And I recognize that he recognized that same thing on my side, just it's going to happen a different way. And I just think we left each other alone in that, right? Yeah. I, I think it touches back on how we discussed that level of trust. And you know, that, you know, they are going to do their job. You're going to do your job and let's not interfere with that. And in this situation, less is more. Yeah. I love the, the understanding that you guys had. It's a really cool dynamic, even on this call, you're bouncing back and forward without, without too much of a, of an awkward pause, which is great for me. It took, um, uh, it took about two seconds when we first got together to figure out. I remember we were doing one of the easier dives and you typically want to be like just north of 50 points on those. And we were watching on, we have like, you know, instant replay. And so we go and watch on the TV together. I'm like, oh yeah, that's a good one. Like that'll put us right about 51. And he was like, I don't think about it like that. <laughs> I was like, what do you mean? Like, that's, that's the goal. That's what we're trying to do. And he's like, no, no, no. I, I don't think about diving like that. I just try to execute the best I can. I was like, oh, this is interesting. I like this. And so that, that's interesting to me as well, because at that point, there are some multiple reactions you can have, Mike, from, oh, this is interesting, is one reaction, to, holy shit, you're fucking stupid. Like, how can you not think about it the, the right way, which is my way, right? <laughs> is that a natural, like, inclination of your personality to just be accepting of, of other people's views? Or was it like, okay, I better just leave him because it's competition? But I think he's pretty stupid. <laughs> no, I never thought it was stupid. And I sort of said earlier in the, in the podcast that watching diving my entire life, being around the sport, there weren't a lot of people who went about the sport the way that I did. So I recognized that it wasn't a common thing to want to have adrenaline on hundred percent when you were diving. And so I knew that wasn't for everybody. And the other thing is you watch Sam be so successful for so long. And the last thing you want to do is tell someone who's really successful that you're doing it wrong. You got to do it my way. And so he did a great job the whole time prior to us getting together. And then once we got together, I just had to respect that and roll with it. You are listening to Toughness. And if you're this far into the episode, there's a good chance you like the show. You can add to the conversation with the whole review, rate, subscribe, and share thing. If this helps just one person who needs to hear what our guests share to get them through today, it'll all be worth it. Stay tuned for more coming up, including... You got to find a way to love what you're doing and find a way to want to give that 100%. So I think for most people, it's find a way to get excited about whatever it is you're doing. Find a way to be all in. So damn proud. So the dynamic between the two of you where it's like, yeah, I'll just let him be him, right? And give him space is a very cool one. But if we think back to what we were just talking about earlier around if you get stuck either with physical fear from twisting or with there's some mental health issues that are, that are coming up that are totally unrelated to the sport, right? Part of being able to deal with that is talking to a coach, talking to a support person who's able to actually help you through. How did you guys handle that if, if you're kind of leaving each other be? Like, who's the outlet for each of you? Or did you have one or did you handle it yourself? Yeah, we always – we talk with our coaches all the time and then our coaches also talked. And then I personally use a sports psychologist – all the time on a weekly basis. That was kind of my vent that kept me, you know, organized in my head and on the right track and, you know, just pointing me in the right direction. Yeah. I also think too, you know, we talk about leaving each other alone 
when it comes to our competitive settings or even in a practice setting, but when it comes to personal issues that goes beyond the pool, we're really good friends. You know, we're really close and there's nothing that Sam wouldn't do for me and vice versa. So our relationship became really strong and we had that loyalty for each other and that willingness to help each other. It was more of just a competition setting. We weren't going to interfere with how, how the other person was. Got it. Are you close enough that, that you're going to miss Sam when he moves shortly across the country? Like it's going to be, you know, star-crossed lovers across the, across the divide here? So I just moved to Florida about two weeks ago and then Sam has oh, taken off. So I, I get the message, I think. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Let's explore that dynamic. Right. <laughs> he scared me off, I guess. <laughs> um, so one of the random things in the show notes that I loved reading, but I didn't think I'd talk about until I've just, I'm scanning back over it again here and I'm like, huh, I wonder with how competitive and how much of a gamer Mike is, has that got anything to do with the fact that both of your parents were coaches? I would say definitely. I grew up in a very competitive household. And two things you had to do is you had to have great work ethic and you had to be competitive. Otherwise, it was, uh, it was a tough time. <laughs> so we, you mentioned, Sam, you had a, a sports psychologist who you were very regular and consistent with. Mike, are your parents still heavily involved from a coaching point of view for you or they were they had elevated or, or been moved to just being parents and you had a very clear coaching setup? Yeah, so my dad was a basketball coach. My mom was a diving coach and my mom was actually my diving coach until I went to college. And so, you know, she taught me everything I know about the sport. She was absolutely my mental coach, my spiritual advisor, whatever you want to call it, sports psychologist. When I left, I mean, she's my greatest mentor in the sport. And so anytime I was struggling with anything or just needed help or needed somebody, you know, to get me back on the path or I was in the right place mentally, it's the first call I'd make, no question about it. Interesting. So, and it's very interesting that you referred to her as the, like she was your sports psychologist or your guru or whatever you want to call it, right? Every person that we get on here, Olympic medalist, Navy SEAL, Esports world champion, like wh- whoever it is, performing at the highest level in their in their field, has someone like that. Whether it's explicitly a sports psychologist, or it's their mum who who is a pseudo psychologist, but they're very good at their job. What's e- either of your advice for people who don't necessarily have that yet? Either they weren't blessed with two parents who were coaches and were also very adept at handling their son through that dynamic, or someone who doesn't have access to the resources you had, Sam, at college, how would you encourage someone to try and find someone of that ilk to help them, A, improve, but also even just handle the shit that comes along with trying to do hard stuff? I think even if you don't have a coach, writing about it helps. If you can't find anybody, writing things like this down on a day-to-day basis will get you on more of a track to understanding who you are as a person, how you might work better, you know, keeping a journal of that. And that's something I used to do is take a lot of notes on my training. And then I would bring that to my sports psychologist and talk to him about it. So we would discuss that week of training, how it went with my coaches. And a lot of times I, I can't remember everything. So I would always have it written down and and notes on trainings. And then I can come back to it and say, this is what happened. This is what's going on, you know? And so even, and I, and I grew in, understood more of myself just writing those things down and, and it just felt really good doing it too yeah that's really interesting the way you you word that 
you wrote it down and you, and you grew to understand yourself better and how you might work better, right? And that's a, a thing that I would often say to athletes, whether it's one of the best female soccer players in the world or an esports competitor, is a lot of the work that we will do on this front is it's partly about like mastering your game, but it's much more about learning yourself. I might teach you a few tricks here and there, but this is going to be so much about the learning about yourself and how to handle that tool, for want of a better word, better under pressure. So I love the way you described that there. Can I touch on that one more, one more thing? Yeah. That when I were working with my coach, in diving, it was a lot of, you know, figuring out what works best for you. And so in training, you know, your coach would give you all these cues or ideas or, or, you know, ways of doing something. And then he'd pitch it to you, you know, the same thing, a different way. If you heard it a different way or from another coach, but the same thing, it may click and work out. So hearing that and having your coach push you in a direction to help you figure out your game was a lot of what, what we did in training as well. Interesting. So that's another version of flexibility. Mm-hmm. So we've talked about psychological flexibility. There's communication flexibility, for want of a better term there. How much is physical flexibility important for divers? Like I'm thinking of gymnasts, obviously, and it's the closest correlation I can get. Is that like, is flexibility the name of the game in diving just on all fronts? It was probably the thing I was weakest at, the thing I spent the most time trying to get better at. Incredibly important. I think a lot of people, especially when you start diving at a high level very young, naturally have that you naturally pick that up but start taking it seriously a little later you get behind the eight ball flexibility is a tough thing to gain at a certain age yeah moving in towards the tail end of the show here and, and particularly because of the nature of the show the majority of the audience are not olympians let alone divers so given how specialized your area of expertise is in that sense you both just by being olympians you've been labeled the best in the world, but you've gone and been the best of the best in the world. What's your advice for people who aren't necessarily the best in the world at something, but are trying to either get better at dealing with a stressful situation or handling pressure in whatever their arena is? How would you take a nugget from your diving expertise, from your experience, and say, you know what, this is actually the one thing that I've used outside of diving that I think is really applicable to most people? I think from the two different perspectives and divers mike and i are it's a testament to say to everybody that you have to figure out what works best for you because we both were just so different and we both had our own methods and you can try a million different methods and until you figure out what works best for you it's not gonna i personally thought it would never pan out until i knew what works best for me yeah i guess one thing you know going back to my mom and my mentor that i was taught at a very young age was doesn't really matter what you do that was something she always told me. I don't really care what you do, but whatever you do, you're going to give 100%. You know, and you got to find a way to love what you're doing and find a way to want to give that 100%. So I think for most people, it's find a way to get excited about whatever it is you're doing. Find a way to be all in, you know, the burn the ships mentality. Like there's, there's no going back. I'm 100% in. I think you find, when you find that feeling and you can get excited about something, that's the way you're going to succeed. Love that. On that note, getting excited about what you're doing, what's in front of you, burning the ships. So obviously I love also for no one, for people who can't see, the lights have just gone out behind Mike there. So it feels like everyone's getting ready to wrap it up. Perfect timing. The topic of loving and, and really engaging in, in what's in front of you. You've both been to the Olympics. You've won an Olympic medal. And so 
is that chapter closed and we're moving on to new things? Like what are your hopes moving forward each of you around firstly the sport, but also just beyond that? I just took a job within the sport. Now I'm working for the diving board manufacturer. So I'm pretty happy that I'll be staying in the sport, working with the athletes, working with the coaches and trying to create a better board for these athletes and better diving products. So it's nice to keep my head wrapped around the sport and keep that passion alive. Yeah. And you're, you're a mechanical engineer, right? Is that like your, yeah. your day yeah. job, so to speak? Yeah, so and you're you an Olympic badass? <laughs> yeah, I'll be a research and development engineer for them. Very cool. How about you, Mike? Uh, yeah. So as far as my future as an athlete, I'm not, I'm not really sure right now. That's something I'm going to reevaluate. This past year, I did my first year of my MBA at the University of Michigan. And so this upcoming year, I'll do my second and then graduate. I'm doing an internship right now. That's why I'm in Florida. I just started as a venture capital summer associate. So we'll see. Uh, going to give this a crack and see how it goes. And, you know, one day at a time. Yeah, very cool. The concept of a, a diving board, which clearly needs to be flexible in order to serve its purpose, but it also needs some firmness, right? What's the perfect mix in the diving board? Like to make sure that material is tough enough to not break, obviously, and not be too soft, but... Like, is there, any, is there any parallels there or am I searching too hard? I mean, if you want me to get technical, we can jump into plastic and elastic deformation. Um, mm. Plastic and elastic deformation. Plastic deformation is when it reaches its breaking point, it breaks. And elastic deformation is when it stays within that range of where it won't break and return to its original state. It's like taking a rubber band and stretching it. It'll go back to normal. You stretch it too much, it's going to break. Interesting. And that's to me the like there's the magic analogy almost of is it true you think most of us have breaking points in terms of pressure and stress and that what we've described both with your very different range under pressure versus Sam's where he wants to be really stretched. Sorry, Mike wants to be really stretched and it doesn't work unless you really put him under that strain versus you're like, you know what, here's about my range and this is where I want to control it. But both of them end up performing optimally under different ranges. Am I reaching too far there or is that a fair analogy? No, I, th I think that's proper. Yeah, okay. I'm going to work on using that. I'm probably going to come back to you at some point, Sam, and be like, hey, I need you to give me that definition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, guys, I appreciate you being on the show and sharing your experiences. Congrats again. Firstly, on met you until now. So firstly, on the Olympic medal in, uh, in Rio. But uh, Mike, also for getting over there and handling a a unique and tough games and look forward to seeing what you guys kick on to next thanks again for your time thanks buddy thank you appreciate it take care so what is it got to be so damn uh, excellent busting with the best in there simply impressive no worries